0: It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis.
1: And I'm Sky David. This week has been so chaotic that when I was thinking about what we would record for the podcast, I thought the state of the state was last week.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I went to Asheville Tuesday Mm -hmm. night, came back Wednesday morning, I was talking about a meeting we had Tuesday. I thought that was last week. It has just been one of those weeks. Topsy-turvy, upside down for me. I know for all of us.
1: But a fun week. And we talked about this with a representative today. Just the pace of the General Assembly this year is a different tone than in previous bienniums.
0: We've heard in past sessions that this year we're going to get done early. And then this week we were talking to some staffers and some appropriation chairs. And they're like, we're behind closed doors writing the budget. I'm like, oh, so we are moving at the pace, you said. I mean, we're going to have a budget in the house two weeks before we know fourth quarter returns.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. That's confidence. Speaking of confident, (laughs) (laughs) my good old buddy, old friend over here. (laughs) <laughs> was on tv monday night with live reactions to the state of the state and to the lieutenant governor's response uh-huh. yeah i didn't get to see it because i had to be on a zoom call for a client but i did get to see your initial introduction where you and your confidence really <laughs> let in they showed you on camera and then you pointed right at the camera <laughs>
0: Looking at you out there, viewers of Capital Tonight on Spectrum News. Yeah, I was in the studio. It was live. Uh huh. And you could tell one segment I had to go to the right. bathroom. I forgot to plug it back in my lavalier, and you didn't hear me during. Oh, like so it
1: was a- your fault. You made it sound like it was their fault.
0: Well, they unplugged. They, the pro- yeah. It's my fault. The producers over there are great. So. You didn't see this, that no. segment where you couldn't hear me on Capitol tonight. Alan Kissball, one of the producers over at Spectrum News, he comes crawling along the floor <laughs> and he reaches up. I feel this guy reaching in up into my suit jacket and he's plugging it back in. He's like, we can't hear anything. <laughs> and then he crawled away. That's, oh, wow. that's live TV. The courage That's to do that—that's
1: showbiz, that. baby. <laughs> That's
0: right. <laughs> the show must go on, and the show was on Monday night as we heard Governor Roy Cooper give his last State of the State address. Pretty standard address. He opened up with some things we agree on. He closed with some things we all agree on. It was in the middle where he said, look, don't go down the whole social issues thing. Let's get Medicaid enacted right away. Pretty standard speech. No fireworks. But uh, he discharged his duty.
1: And then Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson gave the GOP response.
0: Pretty standard response, which is the news story about Lieutenant Mm -hmm. Governor Mark Robinson. He was on a message. It was a positive message. It sounded a little bit like a campaign speech, opened up with a little bit about himself. And he also seemed to work in Sky, sort of an apology. He talked about how we're, you know, rising up with these political swords and we're fighting. And he said, Look, I include myself in this we need to put down our swords, we need to find common ground. Kind of this new Mark Robinson that we've been talking about over the last couple months, he seems to have chilled out a little bit on some of that hot rhetoric. It was a good speech. It was a good response. A little rumor going around has not been confirmed. A lot of folks have credited some of the messaging we saw from the lieutenant governor to Lauren Horsch, who works for Senator Phil Berger. She's the communications director over there, but did a splendid job. I was also told this. Mark Robinson did not read the speech on Monday, mm-hmm. that he doesn't read speeches. And they had to do a lot of takes. I heard this from another source. They had to do a lot of takes. But he likes to speak from an outline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really explains his style because he is not totally. stilted at all. The guy mm. is, a he can barn burn a, a speech. And he, he did well Monday. Uh, both sides did well. I mean, I think both the lieutenant governor and the governor can feel proud about their speech.
1: Moving on, last week we talked about the Medicaid expansion deal that happened on Thursday morning and what, The actual details of that deal were, that was revealed on Tuesday in the Senate committees as it worked its way through the committee process, and that bill is on its way through the legislature.
0: Yeah, we're expecting it to make it to the governor's desk by the end of next week. Is that the plan? Yep. We know the governor is not pleased with it being tied to the budget, but that's just how the game's going to be played this session.
1: So like we said at the top, the house is writing their budget. And on Wednesday, we heard that the spending cap between the chambers had been reached. And that was really interesting because we were saying last week, you know, we haven't heard how much we're going to spend, increase spending. And usually that comes before a chamber is writing their budget, but they're writing their budget now. So I would assume that area chairs have their numbers as well.
0: We're looking at a 6.5% increase in spending. So we're looking at a budget that's knocking on the door of $30 billion, $29.7 billion. Little context. When I first came into the General Assembly 20 years ago. Yeah, we know. $15 billion,
1: I think, is what we were spending. Mm.
0: Doubled. There's
1: a lot more people here now.
0: In year two. They see a three and three quarter percent increase, so it will take it over the thirty billion dollar mark. We'll be at thirty point eight billion dollars. House working on their budget. We feel like that budget's going to be done first week in April, and then the Senate said they mid-May. will be done in
1: May. Yeah, yeah, mid May. And we still have not seen a governor's budget, as you just noted. Yeah,
0: that usually drops the March. day after. He gives his State of the State address, kind of a preview of what he wants, and then a budget comes online, or at least that's how I remember it. But, you know, we're a few days after this speech and still no budget. By the way, we're recording on Thursday afternoon, so who knows? It could be dropping on Friday. Uh, That would be a
1: weird day to drop a budget.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's right. A little weekend reading.
1: There were some other bills that made their way through the legislature this week. I just want to highlight a couple of things. One is that the Speaker's rioting bill passed the Senate this morning. And one Democrat, Senator Mary Wills Bodie, did vote for that. Over on the House side, there was a group of Democrats that voted for that bill. And so that is on its way to the governor's desk one day after the hotel safety bill was sent to the governor. So now there are two previously vetoed bills sitting on Governor Cooper's desk pretty early in the session. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to the speaker's riding bill, I want to mention this to you because it shocked me in committee. Wednesday morning in Senate rules, that bill was heard, the riding bill. And an activist got up in committee and he said that and it it was in no uncertain terms that they organized across the state and they would be organizing against Democrats who voted for this bill or were primary sponsors of the bill and it was pretty directly a threat to Representative Willingham who was Mm -hmm. in the room at the time.
0: I find that to be in poor taste when a group does that usually doesn't Persuade anybody to go, oh my goodness, they might beat me. I think I should vote no or take my name off the bill. That's usually not how legislators work. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's not how legislators work.
1: A couple other bills I just wanted to highlight. One that we had talked about with Representative Moss when he was on the podcast, there is a bill that would impose tougher penalties for those who damage substations. Um, Again, that's from the Moore County attack in December.
0: Yeah, there was a compromise reached on the Wake County Commission bill that was sponsored by Representative Aaron Perret. Representative Perret wants to have Wake County Commission elections where they are in their districts, you run in your districts, and you only vote for the candidates in your district. Right now, Wake County residents vote for all candidates in all districts. So you will only vote in your district under this bill. And then there'll be two at-large votes. You get to vote for that. Now, her initial bill had partisanship taken out of the equation. Mm. So you don't run as Republicans or Democrats. That comes off. And you still run partisan, but it was a compromise that she reached. She announced the compromise. And I think this was a solid move by Representative Paré and a great compromise on both sides.
1: Also, as a follow up to last week, we talked a little bit about the Convention of States. And I just want to say that I said Convention of States and you said Committee of States multiple times.
0: Yeah, we got a note on Twitter and they were very kind in the way they did (laughs) say, look, you got the name wrong. So I am sorry. It is Convention of States. And they had a bill pass the House yesterday. And it has passed the House in the past. It seems to get a hang up in the Senate.
1: It's actually two bills. One bill passed, and that one was to focus only on term limits. And that passed. And by a lesser amount, Another one that would be just considering fiscal restraints and power limitations in D.C. So two separate Convention of States bills.
0: And then we had some court news this week, Sky.
1: This afternoon, actually, this broke that the Supreme Court denied Governor Cooper and Attorney General Josh Stein's amicus briefs in the redistricting case.
0: So on what ground, Sky, did the North Carolina Supreme Court deny their amicus briefs?
1: So because this case is so rare that they're rehearing a case, the court decided they are only going to rehear arguments from the actual parties in the case, and that's why the Supreme Court is denying Governor Cooper and Attorney General Josh Stein's briefs in that case. I see.
0: So we had some staffing news this week in NC Poll.
1: Yes, former Representative Brian Turner is joining Audubon as their policy director yeah he
0: is yeah by the way we represent audubon north carolina and it is so great to be able to continue our work with representative turner i guess he's just brian now looking forward to working with him this is a great hire for
1: audubon north carolina you heard i guess it's not really i don't know what you would call this sort of rumor it's not unsubstantiated it's not substantiated it's
0: news i think okay all right proceed Agriculture Commissioner Steve Troxler was in the General Assembly this week. He was talking about his budget priorities. And I walked with him and his staff from the LOB to the LB. And I said, Commissioner Troxler, there is some rumors out there that maybe folks are asking you to run for governor. Is that true? Now, someone on his staff said, yeah, you know, Do Politics Better podcast. We listen to the Do Politics Better podcast. So That was nice. And he stopped, and he said, well, that is true. In fact, I am thinking it over with my wife. We're talking about it, and it's a possibility. I said, Commissioner Troxler, would you mind if I mentioned this on the podcast? He said, I don't mind at all. He said, come by sometime. We need to talk. So hopefully we'll get Commissioner Troxler on the podcast. But, you know, it's being talked about.
1: We have been trying to get Representative Goodwin on the podcast for a while. And we knew that he would have some really interesting (laughs) stories. And he did not disappoint. So this week we got to sit down with him and learn about his really interesting life. Representative Ed Goodwin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district is special?
2: The reason it's special is my wife would tell you because that's where I'm from, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's not the right answer. Northeastern North Carolina, those six counties Washington, Terrell, Chowan, Pequimans, Currituck, and Dare. Growing up, that was my playground. I had friends or relatives in all those counties. Farming and fishing was what everybody did and what we loved to do. Of course things changed when tobacco went away and then the government in, it, in its infinite wisdom decided that we couldn't fish and catch fish anymore. Mm. So that hurt us some too. But the people are resilient, uh, hardworking people, good salt of the earth people. You ride through my district you don't ride far where you don't see two or three churches in every one of those counties. That's just the way it is. It was a good, good place to grow up in. Growing up on the river and down at the beach all the time, daddy fished and farmed. So we were here and there and everywhere all the time. Hunting is good. Life is excellent. And I stayed gone from home for 40-some years, and I couldn't wait to get back. Your
0: district has historically had incredible political power. I'm talking about Senator Mark Baznight, former Representative Bill Culpepper, former Representative Bill Owens. Uh, have you always followed... Politics? Is it something you've, you've watched the General Assembly in action? And is that part of who you've been?
2: I do not really
0: know. I mean,
2: everybody, anybody says they don't watch politics or not involved in it's telling a lie. Yeah. Because they're always cognizant of what's going on, be it the President of the United States or the Governor of the state. For me, in uh, 1963, Benjamin Warner Evans, back in the day when each county had one state representative. And Mr. Evans and his family owned a huge farm, which used to be a plantation. And my daddy was the overseer of that. I knew Mr. Evans and saw him all the time. And I'm a little old teeny squirt. The General Assembly building had just been finished. Yeah. And we came up here on a school bus with those little inch-and-a-half padded seats yeah. with a board underneath them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we rode all the way up here at 30 miles an hour, and we went through the General <laughs> Assembly. And I saw all that, and uh, Mr. Evans, who I knew very well, he carried me all around everywhere. And then uh, after we came home, you know, a lot of us youngins at that age, we were old by government and the big builders and everything. And uh, Terry Sanford was uh, governor, and Mr. Evans brought him down there, and we were sitting in this great big auditorium at school, and I was about four people sitting in. And that entourage come off the stage and started walking. Mr. Evans stopped him and introduced Governor Sanford to me and shook his hand. Everybody said, how do you know that guy? All right. Who was that other man, you know? And that was interesting, you know? Yeah. And Mr. Evans was stopped by, natural, on the farm all the time. And mm. he, we'd go to country stores, stop to get a drink or a candy bar or something. He would be around there. And during my term here, I've caught myself being just like Mr. Evans. Yeah. When I go home, I won't get home till about 8 or 9 o'clock at night because my wife knows when I, I'm going home, I'm going to ride somewhere. I ride. If When we're not in session, I ride every day, all day. Really? Six, six kindness, how, how do you get around and yeah. the people not see you? And the people love to see you. They don't need a whole lot and everything. They just want to see you, the guy they, or the person they vote for. That, they want to see that person in their community, in their stores, in their restaurants, on the road, and all that kind of stuff. Everybody says, well, you must have really had a lot of experience in politics. Well, not really. I mean, I was drafted during Vietnam. That made me kind of political, and uh, that did something to me. Still does, but, and then uh, it got even more political when uh, I got my job I had as a special agent uh, with the federal government. Uh, I was around politicians all the time. Some of them I didn't like worth five cents. But my job was to protect that man with my life. Don't let anything happen to that man. And I didn't like him, but I still would do my job.
1: So you talked a little bit about leaving The area that you're from for over 40 years. Tell us what you did in your career.
2: Well, I was uh, in my, just started my second year at East Carolina. I got a letter in the mail, and I knew it was coming because they were drawing birthdays for who was going to get drafted. I was the 12th time they stuck their hand in that spinning basket and took out a birthday. When they pulled that one out, that was my birthday.
1: So what year was this?
2: 72. Uh, no, 71, and uh, I went into service at 72. Okay. So um, that kind of changes you a, a whole lot, you know, especially when my daddy who was a World War II veteran, fought overseas and everything, and he would say, son, I don't want you to go. I said, this is not right. They're just going to go over there. All the seasoned veteran fighters, men who have fought, they would bring them home. We were, they were really reducing the numbers. And then they go send us in, in, guys who just went through basic training, and now here you're going. And uh, daddy said, son, I don't want you to go. And that shocked me because uh, if my daddy sees an American flag, he used to cry. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like him if, if I see one. But um, he said, son, I don't want you to do it. But if you will go, make sure you do something in the military that's going to help you the rest of your life. So I was already had my papers telling me to report to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And I was about eight days late. On oh. the 10th day, the local sheriff would come pick you up and carry to, to, you'll to you be transported to that military base. Wow. So I went to see the sheriff, told him, he said, oh, don't worry about it, you got plenty of time. I started looking up a recruiter, uh, a Air Force recruiter. I find him, he had an uh, unlisted number, but I called him that night about 11.30. And he said, what are you doing calling me? How'd you get this number? I said, a desperate young man do desperate things. Hmm. And uh, I told him my situation. He said, all right, well, if you come to my recruiting office tomorrow at the shopping center, I'd be in there about 6.30. I was sitting out there on the cement sidewalk at 5.30. Mm. So I went, went in. He told me, and uh, he asked me what I wanted to do. I told him I didn't really know. Uh, he said, well, let's you go back down that room by yourself, take that test. Mm-hmm. When, I, when you come back out, I'll grade it, and I'll see what I can do for you. So I did, and he gave me uh, an option of five things. I said, what's number one? He said, I don't know. What's number two? I don't know. He went right on down the line. I said, you're a recruiter. You've been in the service 30 years, and you don't know what these jobs, you can't describe these jobs to me. I said, no. Nope. I said, okay, well, I, I'm not going to take one. I'm not going to take five. Give me two. So two ended up being uh, intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles, the ones in the silos in the ground. They sent me to school for that, and then I spent all that time mm. with those missiles, Wow. Uh, working on stuff above ground, in the ground. Having, having said that and done that for four years, That was a trade I learned that would benefit me later on, just like Daddy said, learn something that's gonna carry you for a while. So after I got out of service, farmed with Daddy and uh, uh, did some construction, all that kind of stuff, and I said, well, I'm gonna go back and finish school and get this over with, and I did. And uh, I ran ran into some uh, government people that were recruiting at East Carolina University for certain, certain people that had certain skills or were this and that and other. So one of them made an appointment with me and talked to me, and uh, next thing I know, I'm being interviewed several weeks later for a job with those people. I drove from Edenton to Newbern, and that's where the interview took place. And uh, I didn't think I'd be there that long. And they talked to me from uh, about quarter to nine to about four o'clock that afternoon. Went to lunch with them, and over lunch, I said, "I think I got this job." <laughs> and uh, that I, I got hired as a special agent with Naval Criminal Investigative Service.
1: What does that mean?
2: That means I was uh, 1811, which means I'm a gun-carrying federal agent. Okay. Uh, you know, the programs on TV, CIS, well, um, I know where it came from.
0: Can you describe to us what exactly your job was as a federal agent who's carrying a gun? What kind of crimes or what laws are you enforcing?
2: Every law that was on the book in the United States of America. Okay. At a federal level, that's that's what it did. Now, I helped a lot of locals with some of this stuff, but... I've been undercover I don't know how many times. I can say that now because it's been so long.
0: Organized crime? Yeah, uh,
2: drug smuggling, stolen weapons wow. from the government, See, so a full boxcar full of uh, cocaine, wow. uh, full of M-16 rifles still in Cosmoline mm-hmm. that were going, supposed to go to an army base, and it was diverted by some ne'er-do-wells. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an informant who gave me the information and set up, and I became one of them. And then eventually we arrested them all. We got all the guns back. To a a boy growing up, mm-hmm. and I played in the woods and had guns and knives and boats and fishing stuff all the time. I was living a little boy's dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I still I still can't believe it. when I start talking about it. That's why it's hard for me to talk about. It. I start talking about it. I can't believe I did it. Mm-hmm. And usually I don't like to say anything about it to anybody because people look at me like that guy's lying or that dumb signing accent that man's got and no way he did that <laughs> no you gotta... so to prove that in the general assembly uh some of them said i just don't believe that so i come in one day and had on a tie and had a tie clip on it and they said what what kind of tie clip is that i took it off i said that says that's ronald reagan's signature i said that's right where'd you where'd you buy that i said i didn't buy it didn't cost me anything well how'd you get it i said i was on president reagan's detail and uh I was going off and he was almost finished with his time as president. And uh, I'd been on it several times. He said, took it off his tie-tack, took his tie-tack off his tie. I said, young man, it's been fun. My wife loves you to death. I do too. Keep on doing what you're doing. Give it to me. And he put it right on there. All
0: right. So a bodyguard that's uh, in that role, that's different than being a Secret Service agent? or No,
2: that's what it was.
0: You were a Secret Service agent.
2: No, it wasn't a Secret Service agent. The Secret Service would... Ask for some help sometimes on certain things. What year did you retire? 2002. And then I worked for Blackwater for about two and a half years. Wow. I mean, I still love guns. So, I mean, they could pay me to shoot guns and teach people how to shoot guns. I'm, I'm all for that.
0: So we do work for the Raleigh Police Protective Association. And talking to the police, they say there's another side of the world or even this community that we're in that most of us don't see. That's right. Forcing federal laws, organized crime, smuggling, guns, all of that, that has to be next level Oh yeah, unsettling.
2: I watch TV now and look at it, and my wife said, hey, they they caught this or they did this. I said, I don't even want to hear that. We could have wiped all that out, like at the border, could have wiped all that out Mm -hmm. in probably two or three months. All that fentanyl coming in, no. We just stopped in a heartbeat. We used to do it. When you get tons of cocaine coming in, in boats and planes and everything, I mean, that's, it's a lot of fun for a redneck farm boy. Mm-hmm. I mean, give, give me a gun and tell me to go get somebody, don't care what it takes. Now, that didn't mean I, I would shoot everybody, I wouldn't do that, I'd rather fight. And I, I just did grow up on the farm with my brother older me, he beat the tire out of me all the time. But I, uh, daddy told me, said, there's going to come a time when he can't handle you. I said, what? I said, every time he beats you down, you get right up and jump on him again. So, and I did, I was like that, so... I love when we were working drugs on the cover or doing other kind of cases, chasing bad guys or going into a city to help them with a the crime problem. They would grab a bunch of us, put us together, and you go into so-and-so city and help them clean it up. Well, that means we authorized to do anything we please. And the cops couldn't really do that. So we were told, make it safer in that in that time.
1: So with all of these surreal life experiences, was there ever a time that caught you off guard where you thought, I am so honored and proud to serve this country or like, I can't believe this is my life.
2: Both. When you said that see, uh, um, I get teary-eyed. And, and I tell everybody, I say, why does it make you get upset? I said, I'm not upset. I, I still can't believe that somebody like me would get a chance to do that. Hmm. And God just blessed me. I happened to be in the right place at the right time, be the kind of man that I, I, I was and I still am, I think. It was like something on TV, a movie or something, you know. Mm-hmm. That's why when the NCIS show started coming up, I got called and I'd go to the uh, filming of the show and mm-hmm. uh, I would sit down with the writers and tell them about this and that. I said, hey, y'all making that fake. We're not that stupid. Uh, <laughs> do, this, do this real time, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that.
1: It's noticeable when we've spoken with you in the past, it's noticeable today that your family means a lot to you. Oh, yeah. The way you talk about your father, your wife, and your kids. Can you talk a little bit about... Family?
2: Well, I was taught that family was most important My, my daddy started that uh, daddy said let me tell you boys something. My brother and I were mean as little devils uh, And we fight each other all the time. We had horses bicycles. We had guns lived on a great big farm uh, We go fishing swimming all the time in the rivers and the creeks and stuff uh, Daddy said there's several things you can do. I'll let you do but some things you can't you don't disrespect your mama he said, I can have some more young ones, but I can't find another woman like that. Hmm. So it came from him. He said, be a better man than I am. So I'm still trying. You want us to get you some tissue? No, I'm fine. Okay. It makes me feel good, really. Good. And, and sometimes I find out that, you know, answering some questions like that or talking, it'll pump me up from here to the time I get home. Well, I'll stop and get me a Mountain Dew and a bag of
0: peanuts. <laughs> Imagine your faith helped. Get you through,
2: oh yeah, I had several guys work with we'd go out on a raid, and we had to do something terrible.
0: we say something terrible. you talking about you had to take a life,
2: yeah, or well, somebody else did, you know, or something, but any or you hurt somebody, you know yeah um that would that would get to you sometimes, yeah. but you had to be able to get it off, yeah several times. i mean I was going home or something, and I put off side of the road because I couldn't see where to go. I was crying so hard, and i get it I'd get it straight. And it was like a comfort feeling, All right, God heard me, it's fine. I don't usually, I hardly ever talk about it to anybody, I, not unless it's a close friend or family member or something like that. My ma- my wife would tell the boys, don't ask your daddy about this stuff. He don't like talk about some of that. And then the boys got big enough, tough enough, and I thought they could handle some of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got more guns than I got. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and I had them trained in martial arts and everything else. So they can take care of themselves. I don't know that they've ever been in a fight.
1: So despite being sort of this big bad agent, I have spoken with you in the past about when you see people at their lowest, rape victims or someone, you've also been a comfort to people as an agent. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit, the other side of it? Like
2: somebody gets shot or in the case a woman gets raped and I'm the one on the call. Or it was on a government compound, or it was a military guy or something like that that was the uh, assailant. I would usually offer comfort to the woman. I mean, I wouldn't touch her and everything. Some of them would would, uh, just look at you and want to be held or something like that, you know. And a lot of times they would say, uh, I don't know why this happened to me. I said, well, you don't worry about it. I'm going to erase some of this from your mind. I said, I'm going to catch him and put him in prison, or I'm going to kill him one or the other. You know what they always say Kill him. Yeah. I said, I know he's got to try me for me to do that. You know, and I'd, I'd hang around with him and go to court. I'd take him to the hospital and everything, get a DNC and, you know, collecting an evidence and everything mm-hmm. and then take it to court.
0: So, Representative, let's fast forward a little bit. You've retired from your government job. You're working in the private sector for a little while and then you get into politics. Can you talk a little bit about your? Going from law enforcement to politics.
2: Well, I felt like if I could live through all them years of law enforcement, I could sure put up with this crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, what what started that, I come home and I was going to build a house on the farm and I'm getting my building permits and everything, and something just was not right hmm. and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I had to go to the county to get permits and all this kind of stuff. And the way they were treating me, and I will say, you can't just – Give me that permit and let me go tack it up on my, no, I got to pay y'all to come out here and tack it up on my, mm-hmm. when I'm building my house. So I'd ask some questions and everything. I said, went home, was still following with daddy. He was still alive then. And uh, I said, daddy, something's wrong right here. And he said, well, something's been wrong for a while around right here. And the first thing he said was, you thinking about trying to fix it? I said, no, daddy, that ain't my game. And uh, it ended up being my game. I ran for county kind of commissioner in my home county and I beat the guy that was in there. And then I was elected chairman of the county commission from there. But the the worst part was uh, I got sworn in and that same week we found out the county was broke. We had a $40 million surplus and it was gone. They had, the manager and the commissioners had had a big time and they blew that money. So I fixed it in four years and I had had enough of that. That was enough. The next time I ran, I ran, that was 2012, I ran for Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I got two million votes, and I lost.
0: And then you made the leap to the General Assembly. That was 2016? Yeah. What made you want to serve in the House?
2: Kind of the same stuff I uh, I saw when I I ran for county commissioner. Mm -hmm. Something was wrong. Like, in my district, it's a poor district. Like I said, it was farming and fishing. And look, and I'm, and I'm traveling around, and everybody's getting this. Of course, in the big cities, and then in some of these little towns, people getting this. I said, how are these people getting this? And of course, Steinberg had the seat as a representative, and he was going to get out and go for the Senate. Hmm. I was going shucks, I reckon that opens the door, so I'll step in there. And I did, and I won that first one. I've won every one since. Now, I don't have anybody run against me. Last time I didn't have anybody. This time, I don't think I'll have. Next time, I don't think I'll have anybody.
1: What's your favorite part about serving your community?
2: When uh, I get something done for somebody that wants it, and even more so that needs it. A lot of little, them little one horse towns like where I live in my that are in my district and everything get overlooked a whole lot. Like I got that I got two was it two and a half million dollars to restore Katie Zion Church. That was old black church that was built by freed slaves who worked for a family who owned them and built a lot of them houses around there, hmm. And they built that church. And they built houses around that church. Mm-hmm. Well, the old heads died off. The young, young ones went north. Uh, but the church still existed. But when Isabel tore it all the pieces, uh, it almost fell completely in. Well, Dean Arp uh, was coming from the beach, and he stopped through there. He had his man, you know, um, can't think of his name now, Dom Mm. Uh, with him, and they when they come back I come in Monday and they said hey we want to talk to you about something." I said that black church that thing is really something you know the one I'm talking about I said yeah Katie okay. I reached in my pocket I said yeah there's a picture of it right there why you got a picture I said I look at it a lot of times so we got the money to restore that church and it's, it's under process now mm-hmm. and trying to get another stack of money to redo the parsonage these houses are built beautiful wood houses on each corner of the porch, there's a great big, that round metal dome-like thing goes up and has mm-hmm. a big ball on it. That's what those freed slaves built all those years ago. And they've been trying ever since Isabel to do something about that church, or oh, it was gonna fall in. And then this old white man comes along and just gives them two and a half million dollars. Mm. And I get accused a lot of times say, say, why, why are you doing so much for the black community? I said, well, I, I lived in a black community. I worked with the blacks, played with them, hunted with them, fished with them, wrestled with them, worked in the fields, pulling the back and throwing watermelons and stuff, picking watermelon. I said, I've never seen a difference. And Some of them here said that. I said, well, if you don't think we should help anybody else, let me tell you this. I said, I got two Japanese sons.
1: Hmm.
2: I said, what do you think about Japanese? I said, but be careful.
0: How did you have... Two Japanese sons.
2: Well, when I got assigned to uh, Japan, when the uh, NCIS sent me over there for five years to run operations in the Pacific Rim, my wife and I, uh, we couldn't have children. Okay. I had a previous son from another marriage, uh, but the two of us were not compatible to have a child. So we got over there, and I was doing my job, and I met a lot of Japanese and a lot of them in government stuff, and met a guy. Japanese man who worked on the military base there and uh, he started talking about children and uh, we told him he said If you'll be interested in adopting a child, I can help you. I said, how's that? He said, I'm friends with an OBGYN doctor's association who has their own hospital. He said, and they they're Christian and they don't believe in abortion. So they try to find adoptive parents for mm-hmm. these young women who have a child and over there it's really bad news. It's taboo to, to do some of that stuff like that. So he said, I think y'all make good parents. Why don't you sign up here and everything? So I signed the thing, gave it to him. And several months later, he called. I got a little boy that's just been born. You want to be his daddy? And, well, I didn't answer the phone. My wife did, and she went to crying. I thought somebody back home had died. And uh, <laughs> I got on there and said, sure. Well, I'll be glad to be his daddy. And then he said, what's his name? I said, what's his name? <laughs> so my wife and I just that quick bang, come up with a name. And he said, all right, I'll meet you on the bullet train Saturday morning at the station at nine o'clock. We got to go like four or five hours. So we went and went in there and the birth mother come out with that little baby boy in her hand, Mm -hmm. walked right up to my wife, put it in her arms and both of them wet the floor. (laughs) With tears, not (laughs) the other way. But, uh, and I had bought a nice big, you know, Sony specialized camera, the the state of the art (laughs) camera. I bought one of them, I was gonna film the whole thing. The only thing you hear on that film is <laughs> me crying, sniffing. Oh, that's great. So back uh year later, year, about 14 months later, we got a call. So we got another little boy. Would you like to be his dad? I said, when you want me to come? Same thing, you know. Wow. So we adopted uh, two boys like that. One of them's a captain in the Army. He's in, getting ready to leave this weekend and go a year and a half at Monterey a language institute for Mandarin Chinese.
1: Mm.
2: And the other one's a physical therapist. Wow. And both of those boys old enough now. They say, God really smiled on us, didn't he, Dad?" I said, yep. Yeah. I said, if you don't think he didn't smile on you, he sure smiled on me. And people say, I declare them boys are just like you. I said, they have none of my blood, none of my genes in them. But that belief system they have. Yeah. You know, God, country, mama, all that kind of stuff.
1: If you could change one thing in our politics today, what would it be?
2: It would be the one thing that I don't think we could ever change. Most time in politics or in the General Assembly, you know, it's not—we do work together, but not that much, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, politics is nasty. Uh, it doesn't have to be like that. Several times I felt I could tell my blood pressure had gone up sometime because something somebody said something somebody did something. It just, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be fun. It should be exhilarating. I mean, when I went home and told them, here's a $10 million check for so-and-so, or here's a $5.5 million check to start that ferry system in my neck of the woods, and those sounds and rivers and stuff like that, or fix that black church or something like that, it could be better if we still just would get along. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people in, in the world I don't like, but I tolerate them. In the general assembly, some people, I don't care much for them but I tolerate them. Mm-hmm. And they will probably tell you they don't care much for me, but they tolerate, tolerate me. But if, you, if, you, if your heart and your mind is not right, politics eat you up. Mm-hmm. And I see you eating on some of them guys and they have no fallback position.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If they're listening, they'll probably say, what in the world is he talking about? Well, uh, I can't tell you how many times in there me and God's having a conversation. And that's say, that's all right God, do I say something here or do I not? you know some of them just get up and go to doing it but that's that's you're not getting your point across and some of them told me that when you get up and say something everybody listens and then you shut up and see it yeah no need to argue and debate something like that you know
0: mm-hmm. well representative ed goodwin we appreciate everything you do at the north carolina general assembly your service in the house your service to our country you certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today.
2: You mean I can go home? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you get to Is go. Is listening and hearing
0: I'm going home. You get to go home. Get that Mountain Dew and those peanuts.
2: Yeah. At, uh, at the 4, Foy Mart. I don't know where you know where yeah. It. yeah. That's where I
0: pull in. That's great. Well, we hope you have a safe drive home. Yeah, Thank I, you. I, I will.
1: The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information.
0: It's like we were talking to a retired James Bond, this guy that has some license to kill. You know, he's out there on the front lines of enforcing federal laws. What a great time we had with Representative Goodwin. Thank you, Representative Goodwin. And thank you to Richard Blackwelder, his legislative assistant, for helping facilitate this podcast recording.
1: Tweet Tweet of of the week.
0: Week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org.
1: This week's Tweet of the Week is from Don Vaughn. She's at Don B. Vaughn. And it says, lie upon the table is a weird phrase. I think we can all agree. (laughs) And I just want to note, I had also considered using Joel Gillison's tweet, which is at Joel, Joel Gillison. And it says the last thing you see before your amendment gets tabled. And it is a picture of Senator Ralph Heiss with lasers in his eyes. And so both of these are about amendments being tabled and The motion for that is the motion to lie upon the table. Yeah,
0: which means we're not hearing your amendment.
1: And you can't bring that idea back up for the rest of the session.
0: And by the way, Joel is the policy aide for Senate Majority Leader Paul Newton. So in addition to killing the amendment by having it lie on the table, you can't bring it back up. There's also another reason why you would do that. Because someone would say, well, why don't you just vote it down? If you don't like it, vote it down
1: then that sort of thing can be used in campaigns to vote, you know, they voted no on X, Y, or Z.
0: Yeah. It's a way of just erasing your amendment. And the Senate uses it a lot more than the House. The House will either rule an amendment or a proposed amendment out of order, or we'll just simply vote it down. We got back into our Do Politics Better dinners this past week. That was so much fun.
1: It was. It's been a while. (laughs) We
0: haven't done one since before the pandemic. The pandemic shut it down as we were going into that 2020 short session. We were going to do the dinners that year, but yeah, we couldn't. This is where we invite a Republican from one chamber, a Democrat from another chamber. We invite a non-new frame lobbyist. We invite a staffer from the General Assembly. We try to get someone from the executive branch or judicial branch. Those fell through this week that was unfortunate, uh, and then of course it was me and you and Christy Jones works here, at New Frame. Your food was so good, the conversation was excellent. Now we don't report what the conversations are about because we want people to feel like they can talk and be honest, and mm-hmm. it was really a lot of fun. Now we got someone on Twitter, and this brought up a good point for us, made us think that maybe we should add one, one other person. Listener. One listener.
1: So someone tweeted at you and said, you know, they listened to the podcast and they were interested in coming. And I texted you and said, that made me think maybe we should have one listener, a.k.a. normal person Mm
0: -hmm.
1: who isn't, you know, heavily involved in politics or at the General Assembly every day. And you said you thought the same thing.
0: I think it would be good. Yeah. By the way, we're not going to tell you who was really at the dinner. If the legislators who are our guests want to talk about it, that's up to them. Unless they bring it up, we're not bringing it up. If you are listening to the podcast, whether you're a listener, a legislator, a staffer, a lobbyist, and you would like to participate in these dinners. Let us know. Let us know.
1: So when we did this originally... It turned into a situation where we had like a running list of people who wanted to come and then we would match them with somebody. It may turn into that again. This is what happened. I told Brian he was in charge of the guest list. I'm in charge of the food. I make the food. That's my problem. The guest list, that's your problem.
0: Yeah. I'm not going to say that my problem is bigger than your problem. I'm going to say that getting seven, eight people to all agree to come over to the office on a day at a time is not an easy task because the people we're talking about are very busy people. Legislators have places to go. Lobbyists have things to do. Yeah, if you're interested and we don't, we want to match you up with someone, legislators, by the way, that maybe you don't know that well. We don't want to team you up with your friend, legislative friend. So we can help. Like, hey, would you be willing to do it with this person or that person? But if you have someone like you want to get to know, we usually spend like two to three hours together eating and talking and enjoying each other's company. Mm-hmm. Now, we do get this question, well, how do you do this? How do you, you know, get around the compliance of the lobbying law? The legislators and staff, they pay for their meals. So we we have a, you know, kind of give them what the meal cost and, they pay us back. So that's how we comply with that. By the way, the other thing we don't do at these meals is we don't lobby them. That's right. Yeah. You can't bring your Like if you're thinking, I'm a lobbyist. I'd like to come to this because I want to talk to and so about this. No, 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 no. You can't do that. No lobbying on your bills. This is a safe space to just have conversations. And we don't really have an agenda. It's just kind of things are organic, you know, and it's fun.
1: It was nice to get back into it. So we're going to do that every other Wednesday, and the alternating Wednesdays, we'll be playing kickball. So every Wednesday night, we'll be doing something.
0: I'm so glad we're doing that. Yeah. Thank you for the meal, by the way. Delicious. Mm,
1: of course.
0: All right, Scott. we got to bring up a funny... I don't know if it was funny or not. So It wasn't. I'm... <laughs> Doing capital tonight, Monday night, state of the state, which meant you had to cover the meeting for a client on a Zoom call. They're having a lobby day coming up, and you, uh, you covered the call, and you got a message from one of the participants.
1: So people were putting, you know, everybody's been on Zooms for years and people were putting questions in the chat. So just kind of reading the questions as they came up and responding to them. So I'm reading, reading, and then I see one that comes up and do you want me to read the whole thing?
0: Yeah, let's call her Agnes.
1: Okay, she says, sweet sky, (laughs) great way to start it. (laughs) Are you aware how much vocal fry you use in your voice? So difficult to listen to you. (laughs) (laughs) It's present for some portion of almost every sentence. As a leader and speaker, you may want to improve that. Next part, y'all? As a way to address the range of folks here, from people in their 20s to 70s, feels a bit over-casual from a professional person speaking to other professionals among the students, etc.
0: Oh, Agnes.
1: Stuff. I read it, and then it really threw me off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
0: you use y'all a lot. Is y'all something you use
1: in Southern Illinois? Yeah.
0: Okay, I but thought it was a Southern thing.
1: It's also very, like, just inclusive. I use folks a lot, too. I use folks a lot, too. It just feels easier, and uh, I don't think y'all is unprofessional here. I don't either, I like it.
0: Yeah. But Agnes took you to the cleaners there. Yeah,
1: I got owned. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So I guess I have vocal fry. Mm
0: -hmm. What does vocal fry mean?
1: I'm not really... I thought vocal fry was just when you like overused your voice or something.
0: All right, we're going to look up vocal fry here.
1: (laughs) I bet you didn't get a single person critiquing you, did you?
0: No. No,
1: Happy International Women's Day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Agnes is saying you have vocal fry. Here it is. It is the lowest tone of your voice characterized by its deep creaky <laughs> breathy sound oh. when you that could sp- be true she finds you hard to listen to because of the tones i guess so apparently what you need to work on in this other article in johns hopkins medicine okay uh you need to be pushing more breath through your vocal cords
1: a lot to think about Mm-hmm. but
0: did you find yourself when you get this note from magnus and you're speaking did you find yourself like trying to alternate your speaking did you drop y'all
1: i don't know i then i was like overthinking everything i was saying you mm-hmm.
0: know that's
1: rough it was not great that's for sure
0: okay <laughs> i'm so sorry
1: you know not everyone can be you no
0: I'm sure I irritate someone's ears. I like your voice. You have a very pleasant voice.
1: You don't have to try to make up for it. All right.
0: Well, in your vocal fry voice, won't you take a out?
1: Is that a different voice? I don't know. <laughs> As always, we so appreciate y'all listening, giving us any feedback, any constructive criticism. Agnes. And, yeah. We will talk to y'all next week. But until then, please remember to do politics better.